This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Well, amen. Well, thank you, Tommy and Josh and Michael. Thank you for everyone's contribution and our worship this morning, and greetings again to you who are watching us uh, online. Um, as I came up, some of you might have seen me. Um, you know, I am wearing shorts, and uh, some of you have texted me and said that uh, you are watching the sermons and the broadcast in your PJs, so I assume that if you're going to be comfortable, I will be too, so as we, uh, as we work through the Word of God together, so... Um, we come to really what the, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And the ending of the Gospel of Matthew is, as we conclude this, is probably one of the most familiar passages to us in all of the Bible. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have likely heard a sermon or you've at least heard multiple times the text of Matthew 28, 16 through 20, particularly with the emphasis on the last three verses where Jesus speaks about all authority being given to him and essentially commissioning the disciples to make, to baptize and make disciples. It's probably no accident that the, that this passage is called the Great Commission. And many of your Bibles, depending on the translation that you use, may even have a subtitle just above verse 16 that actually says the Great Commission. That is how we, typically how we understand and know the text. William Carey, who in the 1700s was probably the founder and the leader of what we would call the modern-day mission movement, where he challenged Protestants during the late 1700s, reminding them of the obligation that God has upon the churches to be His witnesses and to be going out to the nations making disciples. And so this text is one that is not only familiar to us, but it's a text of genuine and classical authority over the church that also leaves the church inexcusable. For, neg for being negligent and not obeying it. It's an important text, but it's also an important text where we can, we can miss its weight of importance, not just in the mission of the Christian church in a post-resurrection life, of the, speaking of the Lord Jesus' resurrection, but also the text is very instructional about what it means to live in the light of Christ's resurrection. It's not just a, a text that challenges us to be more missional or share the gospel more or do more for Christ in that line, but it, it also helps us along understanding what it means to live in light of Christ's resurrection power and helping us to live each day in obedience to His commands. And so as we work through the text this morning, I, I want to focus really, on the very structure of the passage, the more that I study Matthew, the more I am impressed with the Spirit's inspiration of the, just 
Matthew's organization of this text. And so my prayer this morning is that we will all be encouraged and desire obedience as we read and study this morning together. So I'm going to back up and we're going to read beginning in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 28. And my reasonings for backing up to verse 11 will make sense as we work our way through. In verses 1 through 10, Josh led us last week in a study of the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, Mary of Magdala and the other Mary came to the grave and they saw the angel. They saw the stone rolled away. They witnessed the earthquake and they were, they were overwhelmed with the, the uh, earthquakes and the shaking, the, the uh, seismic activities that were going on in the garden. And an angel appears that was witnessed both by the women who came to the tomb as well as the guards who were there charged with keeping sight and watch over the tomb and making sure that Jesus' body stayed put. But the angel quickly reminds them, tells the ladies he has not, he is not in the tomb, he has actually risen. And then in verses 8 through 10, we learn that the ladies then are confronted by Jesus. The women, Jesus meets them, and when he meets them and confronts them, we learn that they worship him. And then in verse 10, Jesus tells them and commissions the women not to be afraid, but to go and tell his brothers in Galilee, that he is risen. And then we resume the story in verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, that is the women, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll persuade him or we'll win him over and we'll keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and they did as they'd been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, even as it is to this day. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, what I love about the ending of Matthew's gospel is it's essentially like a product in a, I'll say like an automobile in a manufacturing assembly line. It's one of these passages where all the pieces maybe that are, you think of an automobile, for example, where every part, whether of engine components or body part components or seat components or whatever it may be, are generally and typically made in a variety of factories all over the world. And yet, they come to one location where everything then begins to be assembled together. And then all of these various parts that have been manufactured in different locations now get to be put together, and you see the finished product. 
And that, in many ways, is what we have when we come to this portion of Matthew's gospel. All the various pieces and the, narr- and the narratives and all the things that Matthew has been teaching us and what we've been learning about the Lord Jesus all come together here, and we get to see what the final product is. But the final product here is not merely something that is meant for the church to simply gaze at or just simply to admire, but just like an automobile. It is manufactured for the purpose of a mission, and the mission is it is to be driven. In much the same way here, the authority of Christ, the commissioning of Christ, or the commissioning by Christ here, this is not something that is meant for our amusement. It is meant here to understand the church's mission in light of life after Jesus' resurrection. The gospel explains to us the mission of God. So the church not only knows its mission, but also can fulfill its mission. So as we explore chapter 28, what we need to do here is something that is really, in our day, an easy task to do. At least I think it is. And that is, you know, we, some people like to pride themselves on the ability to multitask, right? So we're going to multitask Matthew, the ending part of Matthew here. The one part of our multitask here is that we need to be able to understand what Matthew is doing here in verses 11 through 20. We need to understand it really by looking on three different levels. One level is being able to understand this passage in light of the entirety of the Bible. How does this passage, how does this commissioning that Jesus gives to the disciples here, how does it compare with the rest of the biblical witness, say with the Old Testament, for example? The second thing is we need to be able to understand how this ending of Matthew's gospel is important within the gospel message of Matthew itself. What is, what is Matthew hoping to sum up here as he brings us to these final few words that the Lord Jesus speaks to the disciples. And lastly, we need to understand how this passage in particular is arranged so we understand its importance for the church today. So I want to begin, first of all, with a section of explaining what I'm going to call that this is not the great commission necessarily. It is, a, it is the great commission, but it's the great commission because it's the final commission. As we think about the Bible as a whole and what Jesus accomplished, we're better off understanding that this is a great commission because it is the last commission. The the Old Testament is full of commissions. If you go back and even thinking about Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, there is a commission that was given to the first human beings, our first human parents, Adam and Eve. God said to them in Genesis 1.28, go, uh, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, you also see the commissioning that is being given there to our first parents. And the reality is that, our, that the first human beings were called to, to obey a commission to where they were to bring, they were to continually bring order to the garden that God created and planted in Eden so that in every corner of creation they would be able to make a place that was habitable for the glory of God to dwell. And there's a 
a lot of study that goes into understanding what I just said, and I wish we had more time to get into it, but it all relates back to understanding that the Garden of Eden was the first temple that God created where there was divine and human fellowship. The problem is, because of human wickedness, it culminated in God's destruction of the earth through what we know as the flood. And God used that flood and saved one family, that is the family of Noah. And then after the flood waters receded, the Lord reissued the commission given to Noah. And you saw that in Genesis chapter 9. And even in just Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So once again, the Lord begins to, he issues the commission once again under Noah. And then the Lord begins to narrow in his scope of redemption by planning redemption for the world by targeting and focusing on one human being, that is Abraham, and through his line, redemption would ultimately be accomplished that would bless the entirety of the nations. God told and commissioned um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and says in Genesis 12 too, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. And so you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this same commission is then repeated again to Isaac and then to Jacob multiple times. In fact, this, we see the same words and types of commission that is given in the book of Genesis alone over 10 times. And then once again, we get to the point where Israel, God has broken them from the bondage of Egyptian slavery, led them away from Egypt, and brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he gathers them at the foot of his mountain, and he tells the nation of Israel, these children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and says now in, Genesis, in Exodus 19.5, now if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be my special possession of all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You think about that in a lot of what Jesus says about heaven and earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so as a result, God brought up Moses to the mountain, and he gave Israel his law, and God gave them his covenant presence and his word. He marked them out as a people who, to, who were to reflect and mediate his glory and his truth throughout the world by keeping his commandments and showing the distinction that there is a massive difference between the living God of Israel versus the dead God, the dead gods created by the imaginations of men. And so the list goes on. You could continue to see other commissions in Deuteronomy. You could see the commission to Joshua, the commission to David, to Solomon, and even culminating, and finally, the commission that was given to the servant of the Lord and the, and the prophet Isaiah. These commissions are found all throughout the Old Testament, even in Psalm chapter 8 and other Psalms where humanity's destiny was to rule over creation on God's behalf until His glory presence, the glory of God, the knowledge of God would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And so Matthew shows us here, when we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew shows us that unlike Adam, unlike Noah, 
Unlike Abraham, unlike Israel, unlike David, and unlike Solomon, Jesus is the last Adam who perfectly reflected the image of God, obeying God in all things, and now Jesus stands as the head of an entire new human race. It's a whole new family. He stands here and calls these disciples up to this mountain. And now he is the father of an entire new human race. He is the head of a redeemed humanity who will be fruitful and multiply through their obedience and bearing testimony to the gospel message. The fruitful and multiplication language here is not now defined by literal progeny but now through a spiritual progeny for all of those who are born again through the, through the gospel message, which is why Jesus says in Mark 3.35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus stands as the second Adam who is the head of a new humanity because he has accomplished all obedience and he is the one who will usher in the glory of God throughout the earth. He now issues the final commission to his followers who will start the process by proclaiming the gospel. But Matthew also helps us to understand a couple of other things that are very important in this text. One is that Jesus claims total an unlimited authority. And it's an authority that really is spoken and rooted in the prophet Daniel centuries before. Daniel chapter 7, in, in beginning in verse 13, says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And in verse 14, Daniel says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and people of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus is invoking this passage. He's invoking this passage because Daniel prophesies about a future human divine king who will be rewarded an inheritance of all creation and people as his subjects because he will receive universal divine authority as king. And Jesus concludes his commission to the disciples in verse 20, telling them that he will be with them always and through every day and through the end of the age. And this is a comforting promise that he gives that, encourage, that gives them the courage to complete the mission knowing that Jesus has full authority. The second thing that I love about this is that Jesus fulfills the promise that was given to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. This phrase, I, I did have a fun time, I ran out of time, being able to just look at that phrase itself, even in the Greek Old Testament, and just looking at how many times it was used, 109 times, and looking at all the ways that, it's, that, that how the phrase, all the nations, were, was used. You know, beyond just the promise that was given to Abraham, it was also a promise where, like for example, in Genesis 26, 4, that he spoke about all the nations being blessed through Abraham's descendants actually inheriting the land of Canaan, the land of promise. 
and buy that because why? Because they, they would settle in that land and expand their own influence as being subject to God himself, and that would mediate a blessing to the other nations to be able to see what a people look like being obedient under the one true and living God. And in Exodus thirty-three sixteen, a passage that should strike us so hard in comparing this text right here, when in Exodus thirty-three sixteen Moses uses this phrase of all the nations by describing that, Lord, the only way that all the nations will know that we are a blessed people is if you do one thing, your presence goes with us. That will be marked out as a distinct people only if, Lord, you will go with us. And here you can't help but to see the comparison here of what Jesus, of Jesus' promise and that he would be with the disciples. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord uh, Moses uh, tells them and says that, or the, or, the, or the Lord speaks through Moses and tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7 that out of all the nations, I have chosen you. Which also reminds us of what Jesus even told his disciples in John 15, 6, that you did not choose me, but I chose you. And lastly, and this is not the last one, but just last to this point, that in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah says it will come about in the last days. And here we are at the last days when they're on this mountain and they're here before the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in these last days. And Isaiah says that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And so Matthew helps us to see Jesus is the final Moses. He is the last temple. You know, mountains have played an important part all throughout Matthew's gospel. Uh, you may remember when Jesus was led into temptation in the wilderness, he was taken to a mountain. You may remember the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. We call this the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, where he delivered it on a mountain. When Jesus fed the multitudes in Matthew chapter 15, he did so on a mountain. When Jesus was gloriously transfigured between, uh, before Peter and James and John in Matthew 17, he was on the, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus delivered perhaps his most important discourse in his entire ministry, we call this the Olivet Discourse because he delivered it on the Mount of Olives. Matthew's gospel was written for a Jewish audience, and it would have been shocking to them for a first century Jew to hear that Jesus is proclaimed as the Messiah, and yet he does something here. He launches his new kingdom ministry, not in Jerusalem, but of all places in Galilee. Shocking. But Jesus, like Moses before, he brings his disciples up to this mountain, and guess what he does? He gives them his law, like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives them his teaching and instructions, like we saw in the Olivet Discourse. The Lord Jesus is one who is, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he is the one who is greater than Moses. And so as the disciples come to this mountain, they sit at his feet and he gives them his law, commanding that they go and teach others to obey his instruction also. 
This time, what's the remarkable difference, though, between what Jesus does here and what was done in the Old Testament is that they no longer have to come to Jerusalem. They no longer have to go to a tabernacle. They no longer have to go to a temple in order to be near the presence of God. Jesus now says, this time, the presence of God is going to go with you, and I am the presence of God. Jesus says, I will be with you. It's amazing. Because Jerusalem is no longer the place of worship. Jesus is the place of worship. Which is why it's so significant when Jesus does say, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Because he is the temple of God. He is the place of worship. Which is why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the locus, the the place of the spiritual and the glory presence of God. It is in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we covered all of this because I wanted you to have a sense of appreciation for what Matthew is doing here. He is showing us the glory of Jesus as the last Adam. He's showing us the glory of Jesus as the true seed of Abraham. He is showing us the glory of Jesus as one who is better than Moses. He is showing us the glory of Christ as the true Israel and the final temple of God. This is a masterpiece, a masterful work of the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so having all of that sort of in the background, I I want to now focus even closer in on the actual text itself in verses 11 through 20. Because what you have in the Gospel of Matthew is that here, you know, oftentimes when we hear sermons or we we think about the Great Commission text, we we tend to just treat that text by itself. But Matthew is doing something here that is meant to help us to see a contrast of actions. In fact, I titled this sermon, The Story of Two Commissions. Because in this, we have two different commissions that are going on. And it's not really a commission that's any different than what we experience today. In fact, the two commissions that we see that are going on in this text are exactly the two commissions that remain with us even to this day. Both both in verses 11 through 16 of Matthew's gospel here, Matthew 28, are connected by a particular word. They're connected by the conjunction but, B-U-T. And we, sometimes we miss it because perhaps maybe our Bibles in Matthew 28, 11 use the word now while. They, you know, the New American Standard translates it that way. While uh, they, that is the women, were going on uh, their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported. But it's very important for us to understand that like In English, the word but can be used to do two things. Either it can coordinate another passage or another event or episode that's going on, but it can also be used as a contrasting faction, in a contrasting way. That the word but is meant to provide a contrast to another action that is going on, showing us two different things that are happening here. That is the way that we should understand this word here in verse 11 as well as uh, in verse 16. That it's using this word, it's meant to be two stories set in contrast to one another. What What are the contrasts? Well, you see, for example, 
that the women left the tomb and they went to give a report. The guards, on the other hand, they left the tomb and they also left to give a report. And that's why as we work our way through these verses, we shouldn't necessarily just focus on just verses 16 through 20 because we will miss what Matthew is trying to demonstrate here, that you have parallels, you have contrasts that are going on here. Essentially, two different commissions are being ordered in this text. Let me explain to you. In fact, we even have a a graph for you, a chart for you to kind of help hopefully make this a little bit easier. Because I want you to be able to see there in, in this chronology, there is a contrast to the types of events that are going on and the results of what is, what is happening in that. First, there is the commission that is issued by the priest and the elders to the soldiers essentially to proclaim a lie versus the commission that's given by Jesus to the disciples toward telling the truth. And all of this is a character uh, it, it's, it's a character as well as a plot contrast because it's meant to show us how people reacted to the truth about what happened to Jesus in much the same way that it is today. Essentially, let me pull it down to you this way. There's two commissions going on. And on one hand is a commission by the religious authorities. They commission a lie. They commission the propagation of a lie as opposed to the Lord Jesus who commissions to tell them, who commissions the disciples to tell the truth. And that contrast exists with us even today. So I want to explore these contrasts a little bit. You, you see in that graph that I had, you had in what Matthew was doing here where in Matthew 28, 4, where the guards were afraid, the women were worshiping. Where the guards went and reported to the religious authorities, the women went to report this to the disciples. Where the religious leaders were conspiring against, uh, against the Lord Jesus here in, Ma- in Matthew 28, 12, the disciples were worshiping him. And where the Religious authorities were giving a commission for defamation, to ruin, to try to ruin the testimony of what happened to Jesus. Jesus is commissioning a proclamation to acclaim him, a commission of acclamation. And whereas at the very end of verses 14 through 15, the guards were trusting men, Jesus encourages the disciples to trust him. And so Matthew shows us that in, this, that in this, there are two very different responses to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The guards were much like the shepherds. You remember the shepherds in, uh, the, in the Gospel of Luke? When the angels showed up and it was, you know, here the shepherds were watching their flocks and all of a sudden the host of angels appeared before them and they became afraid. But when they heard the glorious news, their fear led them to worship. They ran to Bethlehem and there they witnessed the Christ child and they worshiped him. The guards are much like those shepherds. Here they see this glorious unfolding of what happened with this empty tomb and and an angel descending. And Matthew tells us they were like men who were just like corpses. They were just dead with shock. But yet they didn't run to worship. Instead, they ran out of fear. Because they focused on themselves. They focused on themselves because they were Roman guards. And if they were found out that they had fallen asleep or were negligent in their duty, they would pay for their mistake with death. And so the reason why they run to the religious leaders first is because they knew, first of all, no one else in the military would believe their story. 
They would think that, well, look, we saw an angel and there was an earthquake and everybody would think it's a fabrication of a lie. So they run to the religious authorities to try to get some help of how do I get out of this mess? And this is in complete contrast to the women who run and tell the disciples the news that Jesus had instructed. Each issued a report, but they did so for entirely different reasons. And likewise, when the disciples met Jesus in, 28, in, in Matthew 28, 17, their worship is contrasted with the conspiracy of the religious leaders. And as the religious leaders were in contrast to Jesus, they were issuing a commission of defamation as opposed to Jesus issuing a commission of acclamation. One group gave a commission to tell a lie, to smear the reputation of Jesus and his resurrection. And another commissioned a group to tell the truth. You know, this is a powerful lesson for us to understand something of what the Bible has been trying to tell all of us all along, and that is that it takes more than evidence to believe the truth. You know, Matthew 28, 11 through 20 is not just a story about the, about the resurrection and the commissioning of the disciples. It's a picture of what life will be like for Jesus' disciples until he returns in the end. All of humanity will be divided into two groups, those who believe a lie versus those who receive the truth. All of humanity can be divided into those two categories. The guards needed no more evidence and the religious leaders didn't need any more testimony. Everyone who was near that tomb knew the truth, but only some responded rightly. And we need to understand that the depth of wickedness that resides in the human heart, that all throughout Matthew's gospel we have witnessed, it has been the most unlikely people and the most unlikely groups that have actually responded to Jesus' message. In fact, you think about in Matthew chapter 8 when it's a Roman centurion who just says, Lord, just give the command because I'm a man of authority. You just give the command and I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds in Matthew 8.10 and says, I haven't found that kind of faith in even in all of Israel. Even when Jesus goes up to Syria and there he finds a Syrian woman whose daughter is afflicted. She is demon possessed and desperately sick and Jesus commends her faith, and she, he heals her daughter. You see, all throughout Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus responding and reacting to people who were very unlikely to believe, but the very ones who should have believed, they did not. It wasn't a lack of evidence. You know, faith is not believing in what we can't know, but the problem is, is that the rejection of the Lord Jesus is rooted in what they did know. That's what we have to understand. You reject what you do know. And Jesus makes it clear that all of humanity will be divided into two camps. One of the most powerful passages in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age nor in the age to come. What does Jesus mean by that? 
Because the Spirit of God gives testimony to the Word of God. The Spirit of God authenticates the truth of the Word of God. To speak a word against the Holy Spirit is to reject the Holy Spirit's Word being spoken to us. You don't choose Jesus. He chooses you. Otherwise, we would only choose sin. The Spirit's work here is working in our hearts, providing evidence, inspiration of Scripture, illumination of Scripture, all of these things to be able to understand that the Word of God is true. But men choose sin over life and over the gospel. We don't need more evidence. We have plenty of evidence. The Bible has been, more, has been, thoroughly, re, uh, it has been thoroughly examined and worked by scholars multiple, multiple times, more than any other ancient piece of literature, and its veracity, its testimony, and its truthfulness uh, cannot be any more clearly spelled out. We don't need more evidence. What we need is regeneration, the new work of the Spirit. It's also something else I think is interesting about this passage is that the soldiers, they ran to the religious experts for help. <laughs> and I think it's important for us to use caution on, and use this example of, of being cautious about where we get advice. You know, people run to experts. People run to pharmacies. People run to self-help books. People run to podcasts. People run to various counselors. People will run to almost every destination possible to get help in something when they're fearful. They'll run everywhere except to prayer and Scripture. We miss the blessing and the benefit of what's right before our eyes and what God has spoken to us so clearly. We'll run all over the place to hear from someone or something else because many times people do this because they want to escape the conviction of the truthfulness of the Word of God. Listen, the reason why so many people resist the gospel is because people love their sin. And sometimes, even for Christians, there's a tendency that if we, are, if we are not walking in faithful obedience to Christ and we are not submissive to His Word and being in prayer, there's a tendency even in us to want to reject good counsel over getting the counsel of something that we want to hear because we want to remain in our sin. It's hard to do genuine business with God, genuinely examining His Word and praying the Scriptures with Him. It's hard to do those kinds of things without being confronted with the ugliness of our sin, our genuine need for repentance, and so that way we're always being conformed to the image of Christ. You see, what the religious leaders did here was, was to be nothing more than, than an instrument of the devil. They did something that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where there was the fabrication of a lie in order to get Eve to, to fall. And this is, what, this is exactly what Jesus warned about, these so-called religious experts who object to him. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told, tells these religious leaders who opposed him, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand with the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature. He is a liar. He's a father of lies. 
And so what Matthew is positioning before us here is the reality that when Jesus got up from that tomb and walked out of that grave, when Jesus resurrected and he then ascended, all of the world is going to be infected with two different commissions. There is a propagation of a lie, and then there is the actual truth. So in contrast to these religious leaders who were constructing a conspiracy, the disciples were told to worship Jesus. And you cannot, actually we, actually we see the disciples worshiping Jesus, I should say. And we can't, admit, we can't miss how fascinating that detail is. It, it may not mean much to us, but in the first century world of a Jewish audience, to now see and witness here that the, that the disciples were worshiping the Lord Jesus is breathtakingly shocking because it speaks about who Jesus is. He is God. I mean, you can't ignore God's emphatic position throughout the Bible of his exclusivity. I mean, for crying out loud, the, the first commandment that was given in the Ten Commandments is that you shall have no other gods before me in Exodus 23. And then later on in Isaiah, God says in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to no other, nor my praise to idols. And so for Matthew to insert this description showing here that Jesus was being worshipped by his disciples, it is shocking, but it is also testifying to, that, uh, to the nature and the identity of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is God, a very God. And Matthew has been moving us in this direction all throughout his gospel, even in that glorious scene that we saw on the day of his crucifixion, that when the earthquakes happened and the rocks were splitting and the temple curtains were being rent in two, that of all the people who didn't get it, a Roman centurion got it, and he said, truly, this is the Son of God. You know, the last thing I want to be able to mention here as well is perhaps some of you kind of wondered what was going on in verse 17. And in verse 17, we, we, we kind of get this almost unusual phrase here that Matthew tells us that when the disciples proceeded up to the mountain where Jesus was, that, that Jesus designated for them to come, Matthew said, 28, 17, he, Matthew says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. You know, I think, I think all English translations are somewhat universal in the translating that word doubtful or they doubted. And it's not a wrong translation of the word, but I do think that we have a tendency to misunderstand what Matthew is saying. I mean, what were they doubting? Were they doubting the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Were they doubting his authority as the Son of God? Uh, no, that, that is not what is going on here. You see, if we think about this word along those lines, we're going to completely miss the point and why it is such a valuable lesson, not just for the disciples, but why it's a valuable lesson for us in the church today as well. It's a valuable lesson because it's meant to encourage, give us the courage to be obedient to the mission that Jesus gives. Let me try to explain. The word doubted 
distazo in the Greek is not intended to communicate unbelief in the sense of, uh, of just no faith, but unbelief in the sense of a lack of certainty. The doubt or the doubtfulness that the, that the disciples experience here on this mountain is an experience of hesitation because the reality is they're concerned about what all of this means for them now. I mean, all, all this is new. In fact, they're even now faced with the prospect that not only are they going to be living in this post-resurrection of Jesus' life now, but now also they're going to have to live this life without Him being personally present with them. One of the most respected Greek lexicons of the New Testament actually does define the word rather than doubt as, and uses the word instead of hesitate. The disciples hesitated because they were uncertain about a particular course of action. They were uncertain about the events and what all this means for them now. Now, let me illustrate and give you an example here. There's, this word that is used for doubt or doubtful here is only used two times in the entire New Testament. And both of those occurrences occur in the Gospel of Matthew. The other one is in Matthew 14, 31. It's the episode where Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 14, 29, Jesus, he said, he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But Peter, seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? That word doubt there that Jesus uses is the same word doubtful or doubt that we see in Matthew 28, 17. But what's clear in the context of Matthew 14 there is that Peter's doubting was in a sense of reluctance because of fear. Peter needed help to gain courage. Peter didn't doubt in the sense of faith in that he didn't believe in the Lord Jesus or else he wouldn't have cried out to the Lord Jesus for help and to save him. But Peter was sinking and he cried out because he paused in fear about being uncertain on the circumstances that were surrounding him. Peter was doing something that no one would ever expect. Peter was defying the laws of physics. He's walking on water. And in the midst of that wind, Peter quickly grew uncomfortable. He was fearful, and he began sinking, and the Lord Jesus pulled him up. And now you get to the end of Matthew's gospel. And once again, we see the reappearance of that word, where the disciples find themselves just like, the Lord, just like Peter in that water. Now... They are facing the most unusual circumstances of living this life, this life and now in an era of Jesus' resurrection, but now living it without Him personally going to be present. And Matthew helps us to understand that while they worshiped, they were also sinking beneath the water of fear. But these next words that Jesus gives are meant 
to be words of encouragement that is just like Jesus sticking out his hand and grabbing Peter and pulling him up. His words, the last words that Jesus even gives here, that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, is meant to be words of reassurance to give them courage in the mission that he's given them. And it's no accident here how many times the word all shows up in those verses 18 through 20. Did you notice that when we read that? He says that all authority belongs to him. Jesus speaks about making disciples of all nations. He he says to teach them to observe all he commanded. And lastly, I'm going to translate this literally for you. He says, behold, I myself am with you all the days until the completion of the age. In three verses, four times, Jesus uses the word all. Jesus is communicating his absolute authority, his unrivaled, unparalleled authority. That whatever hesitations they have and whatever fears that they have, these disciples are able to overcome that by two things. By recognizing that Jesus has all authority plus the promise that he will be with them. It's no different when Jesus taught them in Matthew chapter 10 and said, look, when you get brought before the synagogues or before the places where you're being interrogated about your testimony before me, don't worry about what to speak. The Spirit will give you the words to speak. It's no different than when Jesus says, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I will be with you in your midst. Jesus has taught throughout Matthew's gospel the promise that he will be with them. They don't have to go to a location to find the presence of God. Now Jesus is saying, I will be with you. And of course that becomes reality on the day of Pentecost. What is the point here? The point is simple, simply this, that faith overcomes fear. You know, the one thing that Christians are really good at is making excuses for not making disciples. In fact, if we were as, if we were as dedicated to proclaiming the gospel as we are to making excuses for not declaring the gospel, we would probably see our culture in a much different situation. The fear that the disciples face here is fear that we all face. I mean, every single one of us have some reluctance, some hesitation, some fear in sharing our faith. Why? Because of exactly the reasons that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 10. You will be rejected. You will be persecuted. You'll be despised. Some will hate you. But you know what? That's what you signed up for. That's what you signed up for. This is why Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow, you can't go back. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. There is, a, there is an understanding here that if you're going to sign up to follow Jesus, there will be fear, but he is giving ammunition to the disciples here to overcome that fear. My authority is unrivaled, and I will be with you. 
That is why faith overcomes the fear. The truth is, and the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, do I believe the promises of God? Do I believe the message of Jesus enough that I can overcome the fear because I believe the promises that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory of the life that is to come? You know, we ought to ask ourselves, why is it that we don't share the gospel more? Why don't we tell our neighbors more? Why don't we tell our coworkers more? Why is it that we don't tell our family members more? Why is it that we are afraid to proclaim the gospel? And a lot of times we fear, you know why? Because of things maybe, maybe because we, we don't like rejection. We fear what people may say. We fear the consequences. Maybe it's economic consequence, consequences. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's just a, you know, the, the fear of being made sport of. I mean, nobody likes to be rejected. We live in a culture that thrives and is addicted to getting likes on social media. Nobody wants to get a bunch of unlikes. But if you follow with Jesus, you will probably live in a culture where you will get a series, and not, if not the majority, of unlikes. The disciples were really guilty of being insurrectionist along with Jesus. The disciples were fearful because you know what? In most cases, when a leader who was a rival king was crucified or, or sentenced to death, all of his followers were also rounded up. They were all guilty of insurrection because they were proclaiming that there's another king besides Caesar and his name is Jesus. There was fear among them about how are we going to function in this life now if he's not with us. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. There's no authority. There's no Caesar. There's no king. There's no one out there who can rival my power, and I'm going to be right with you. We can have a calm, we can calmly embrace persecution, rejection, and all forms of reviling in the face of knowing that He is Lord and He is with us, and His Word and His testimony are true. Faith overcomes the fear. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 39, that we are not of those who shrink back. <laughs> we don't shrink back. How? How do we do that? Because we believe the promises of God. We believe the testimony that these, that these gospels have been giving us. We believe the testimony that His ministry, His Word, his authority, his power, all these things are true. And if I believe that, then I can withstand the adversity. If I believe that, then by the power of his spirit, I can handle the rejection because I confidently have my identity rested in the name of Jesus Christ, not in some kind of subtitle identity that I've created for myself. Listen, today is a good day. It's a good season to proclaim the gospel message, to reach the nations, to, to make disciples. Why? Because you have people all around you. You have, in four weeks, 26 million people lost their job. And they're asking questions. What am I going to do? 
And they may say to you, the last thing I want to hear is some religious message, but what they don't understand, that is the most important thing that they can hear, the good news of Jesus Christ, that your life is more valuable and you are more valuable than your possessions. Just as the Father knows the very hairs that are counted on your head, and just as not a sparrow falls to the ground and doesn't escape his notice, so your life is valuable and Christ died for you. We need to overcome our fears by revisiting this last commission that was given because this last commission was given to to give courage to the disciples to complete the mission that Jesus gave them. You know, God, may the Lord help us to have courage that in our fears of being obedient and our fears of sharing the gospel, we will be able to overcome that fear and the lies of the evil one by clinging to the testimony and the truthfulness of the word of God. My prayers, the Lord will help us to do that. And um, I pray for you that um, we will all be bold and courageous in our witnessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truthfulness of your testimony. Thank you, God, for Matthew, Lord, your servant, your apostle, our brother. Thank you for inspiring him by your spirit to write this and help us to clearly see the contrast, Lord, of those who follow their own devices and their own lies, following the path of the evil one versus those, Lord, who have been regenerated, made new, and follow the truth. Father, help us to be as those who do not shrink back from boldly declaring the truth of God. Lord, help us to remember that we are not given a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fearfulness. But God, may your spirit encourage us and to remember that whenever we face rejection, or reviling. It's nothing, Lord Jesus, that you did not experience. And Lord, help us to be joyful and glad to share in the sufferings of our Savior, knowing that the promises that come when you come, that the promises, Lord, of your coming again, and what awaits us, and what awaits those who have faith and hope in you, are so much more glorious than any, any likability that we can find in this present life. Father, thank you for the testimony of your Son. Thank you for the authority of his power. Help us by your grace to live in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.